You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. There's probably like no more banal observation to make about modern life than that everyone seems to be really busy. Uh, if you ask how you know that everyone is really busy, it's like that old and slightly unfair joke about how to know if somebody's a vegan. Don't worry, they'll tell you. Um, but my favorite metric for the my favorite metric for the scale of the business epidemic is this. Um, in 2013, a group of Dutch researchers uh, concluded that surveys probably miss the full extent of the problem because a significant proportion of people who feel really busy feel too busy to participate in surveys about how busy people are. Interestingly, time use research in, in, the U, in Europe and in America suggests that in an objective sense, we maybe aren't uh, busier than we used to be. Uh, there are not more tasks that we absolutely have to do to remain uh, functioning. Uh, parents get to spend more time with their children than they did. Uh, people in general have more hours of leisure than they did. But there's no question that we feel uh, a lot busier. The feeling somehow has become detached from the reality, which I think is at least the first initial clue that there might be something uh, interesting going on here. What's a lot less uh, obvious than, than that we're busy, I think, is how our efforts to deal with that busyness, our attempts to manage time so that we feel calmer and get more chance to focus on the stuff that matters, how these seem to have the opposite to the intended effect, to increase the feelings of busyness and to make people feel uh, more overwhelmed rather than less. I promise I can give you research findings to back this up if you want them, but I think a personal anecdote is probably going to make the point just as well. There are whole sections of bookstores you probably know dedicated to productivity. Uh, the promise of every new Silicon Valley startup is that it's going to eliminate the, the friction of something that takes too much time in your life at the moment, cleaning the house, uh, getting the laundry done, uh, eating, in the case of Soylent, uh, <laughs> the meal replacement, so that, uh, almost entirely so that you can spend more time doing work. And for years as a journalist uh, with deadlines and all the usual uh, procrastination tendencies, I've been a total sucker for these kind of productivity systems where you completely reorganize your, your life when, according to systems of nested to-do lists and uh, you know, ever more complicated schedules. In fact, I, I hope you understand that you should feel honored to be in the presence today of somebody who has, has achieved inbox zero on several occasions. <laughs> um, just reflect on that. But there's a problem with inbox zero, as I discovered which is that if you get really, really good at processing email, uh, you seem to get more email than you did before. It seems kind of magical, but it isn't magical. It's pretty simple. When you think about it, if you respond to an email, there's a fairly high chance that it's going to generate a reply to your reply, which is going to require a reply to that reply, uh, and on and on and on. Whereas if you're the kind of person who just completely neglects their email, as you may have discovered, it's kind of, uh, it can have some useful upsides. People email you with some crisis that needs sorting out or an answer to a question they need, and then you don't get around to responding, and then the crisis never transpires, or they, um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, it's going to sound okay. So sorry. That's okay. Is that better? Okay. All right. Amazing. Wow, it's like a, a, that's like applause for doing nothing. I'll I'll just summarize what I said in case someone I could. Um, I said everyone's really busy, but the weird thing about how we're really busy is that the things we do to try to become less busy make us feel more busy. And uh, then I talked about inbox zero which is one of these many uh, productivity systems that I've spent a very long time trying to uh, 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 implement uh, in order to make my life work better. And it doesn't work because when you get really good, or rather it does work and it doesn't bring the intended result, because when you get really good at processing your email, you get sent more emails because people reply to your emails and on and on and on. If you neglect your emails, uh, things have a tendency to sort themselves out without your input, which is a kind of a big revelation that uh, I took a very long time to discover. Of course, it's not just email. I think the same pattern that the attempt to manage time with maximal efficiency leads to uh, 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 greater feelings of busyness and more work is um, something that occurs throughout uh, work. In fact, it doesn't only occur in work. It occurs, it tends to invade leisure time as well. When you're deep in this productivity mindset, it's really hard to enjoy a moment of rest because you're always asking whether it's useful for your future goals. Um, it's also a very isolating and, and lonely way to live, uh, I, I think. Merlin Mann, who is a very uh, interesting, great writer who sort of invented Inbox Zero, um, he went on to have a rather sort of moving epiphany where he essentially repudiated the whole uh, ideology of productivity because he realized that he was spending his life uh, not spending time with his three-year-old daughter because he was writing a book about how to uh, use your time uh, e efficiently. <laughs> he wrote about this in a really moving essay called uh, Cranking, which you can, can read online. You get really, really good at doing stuff, he realized, um, and you soon start to think that what counts is doing lots of stuff instead of uh, the pursuit of a meaningful life. I don't think it really should need saying that this is really odd, that, uh, that our efforts to manage our brief lifespans as meaningfully as possible should actually make us feel busier and should give this sense of the really meaningful time being perpetually postponed even further away so that the bit of life that really counts is, uh, is always just across the horizon. But you see it in all sorts of different areas of life and levels of... Uh, uh, society. Technology is a really obvious example. By any sane logic, technology that's designed to speed up mundane activities, like you know, jet engines, dishwashers, email, that ought to make life calmer because it's freeing up lots and lots of time that you can, that you can use to enjoy yourself. But of course it is literally nobody's experience of life uh, in the context of the acceleration of, of technology that it makes everything more calm and, and chilled out. In fact, it's much, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's much, much more frustrating to wait seven seconds for a really slow web page to load than uh, four days to get the same information by mail, um, or 30 seconds for a microwave instead of two hours for an oven, and on and on the examples go. Efficiency very soon becomes its own value, as if the, 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 the only purpose of what you're doing is to do it as efficiently as you, as you can. But this has very strange, perverse consequences. 
the historian Ruth Cowan showed that when these allegedly labor-saving household devices were introduced into homes in the 19th and early 20th centuries, it didn't make the work of uh, women in the house, uh, it, it didn't reduce their workload. It, it led to a rise in the expectations of domestic cleanliness that, that compensated for and eventually outstripped the saving in the workload. When uh, it's possible for all the clothes in your wardrobe to be spotless, it becomes more unacceptable uh, if they aren't. If it's possible to keep the carpet completely free of dust, then it becomes more taboo to have uh, a dusty carpet than it once did. In the same way, it doesn't actually make life easier that uh, your smartphone allows you to answer emails uh, in bed at midnight. It makes you feel that you have to and that leaving it till tomorrow morning would be, would be unacceptable. And there's obviously a very powerful political and economic explanation, I think, for why this is all happening, that we're the victims of an ideology that's far more interested in our being productive than fulfilled and uh, has a great interest in our internalizing the notion that it's a personal obligation to be as efficient as possible. I think I basically agree with all of that, but right now I just want to focus on uh, another facet of the argument, which I tend to think of as more philosophical, psychoanalytic, maybe spiritual. This is the thought that stretches back in all sorts of different forms to Seneca, to Nietzsche, Carl Jung, um, and that you might characterize very, very briefly, a bit glibly, like this, that our predilection for busyness uh, is a form of distraction that serves a psychological payoff, that uh, to stay busy is to avoid having to confront the largest and most frightening questions about life, and specifically to not have to confront the responsibility of making what we can of our very finite time on Earth. Um, here's Nietzsche, quote, we labor at our daily work more ardently and thoughtlessly than is necessary to sustain our life because it is even more necessary not to have leisure to stop and think. Haste is universal because everyone is in flight from himself. And so here I think you can begin to see what might be the deepest allure of the uh, cults of personal productivity and personal efficiency, which is the way in which they sustain and promote that this ancient human delusion that we might make ourselves gods, we might make ourselves infinitely capable. I realize it seems a bit odd to talk about like the seven habits of highly effective people in this context, but I think the, the connection is, is there. This sense, this ideology of limitlessness, the idea that you can do literally anything you put your mind to, uh, is completely permeates the world of uh, self-help and personal development that I've done quite a lot of reporting on in the last few years. Um, I went to a motivational seminar in a basketball stadium in Texas where we were told that um, uh, if we wanted to achieve anything, all we had to do was to eradicate the word impossible from our vocabularies. Um, it's mean, but I can never uh, resist observing that um, the, um, the company that ran those sem motivational seminars has since uh, gone bankrupt and closed down. <laughs> uh, bankruptcy apparently being a word that they had uh, forgotten to eradicate <laughs> from their vocabularies. <laughs> I think in the context of time management, the, the, the real promise is this idea that if, we, if you have if you can find just the right technique, if you can put in just enough self-discipline, you could, in some meaningful sense, do everything. 
and that you would never have to face up to the fact that life inevitably involves trade-offs. So that if you get really, really good at email, if you follow you know, Marie Kondo's decluttering advice to the letter, um, get rid of all your unnecessary stuff, uh, farm out your mundane tasks to a virtual assistant, which is all the rage now. They're not really virtual, they're just in India, so you don't have to think about them as a real person, but they are very much real people to whom you're outsourcing your tasks, and who, if you could just set up the right system and then drive yourself at it hard enough, you wouldn't have to face the truth of the matter, which is that to do anything worthwhile with life, with the approximately 4,000 weeks we, uh, we get, um, you have to make the choice not to do an infinite number of other possible things. It's a really sneaky form of distraction too because it feels so virtuous. If you waste your life sitting on the couch, eating Burger King and playing video games, one problem you probably don't have is the belief that what you're doing is uh, really virtuous and, and great. <laughs> but if you become a master of productivity, you will have that sense. And what will happen, I speak from experience, is that the quantity of things you're doing will start to become the measure of your life. Uh, one poignant example of, of how this works is, uh, I think, is in the, there's a book called Getting Things Done that sold a, a very large number of copies by a guy called David Allen. I don't really want to criticize him that much because he's been enormously helpful uh, to me in my own uh, work. And it's in many ways a very good book. But one part of his system is to keep a list that's called a someday maybe list. And on this list, you put all the things that you're not going to focus on for now, but you sort of would really like to uh, one day. And the hope, I think, is that every so often you'll look at this list and you'll decide that now it's time to implement one of these really important, meaningful, or ambitious uh, projects. But the reality, at least in my life, is that it just becomes a, uh, a, place, a, place, a, hold, a place to hold all the things that you really want to do to make you feel less bad about the fact that you're spending all your time doing things you don't really want to do. And it has, I think, uh, at least the way I, I tried to use it, uh, exactly the opposite effect as intended. So it's not so much that busyness is all the things you ought to be doing with your life if you didn't spend so much time distracted by uh, Twitter. That might just be me. It's, it's, that, it's that busyness is another form of the same kind of distraction that, that Twitter provides. And into the bargain, the other thing that happens is you become so fixated on the future when you're thinking productively in this way that you completely miss uh, the life you're living in any case. The anthropologist Edward Hall uh, wrote that we've come to think of time coming at us like empty bottles along an unstoppable and nearly infinite conveyor belt. We feel the pressure to fill these different sized bottles, years, hours, and minutes as they pass, for if they get by us without being filled, we will have wasted them. And yet it turns out there's no better way to waste your actual life uh, than to spend it fretting about whether you're wasting it and trying to maximize its efficiency. Uh, we have a, a small baby at home, uh, our first, and people are quite often saying very well-meaningly, like, you must really savor these early months with him. <laughs> and like, my response is always like, I was doing until you told me I had to savor them. Because now all I can think about is I retreat inside my own mind and ask whether I'm savoring enough. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I'm drawn away from the present and the other people in it into this question of uh, maximizing, maximizing time. 
You know, the answer, I'm sure, even if I'm a very, very long way from uh, enacting it fully in my own life, is that the only real release from the torments of busyness and distraction uh, lies in confronting and completely acknowledging the limitations of our lives, our limited lives, limited powers, limited attentional bandwidth. This is a thought that I personally associate with Carl Jung, although I'm sure many people here will have all sorts of other touch points for this kind of insight that the only kind of transcendence worthy of the name comes not from the effort to escape our natures, but to embody them as, as fully as possible. I keep a poster these days beside my uh, writing desk, which is called a life calendar from a, from a blog called Wait But Why. Um, and it's basically, I think it's like a 90-year life divided up into a small square for each week. So you can see all the weeks of your life, including like the half that I've already had, so um, displayed in front of you. And the really scary thing about this is like, it's not a very big poster. <laughs> and the boxes are not incredibly tiny. It's just that there isn't much time. There are about 4,000, 5,000 uh, weeks in the, in a, in the uh, average life. When I first made that calculation, I, um, I started, well, when I first made it, I had a sort of momentary nervous breakdown but when I after I'd recovered I started asking friends of mine just in an annoying fashion to to, to just guess without thinking how many weeks they thought uh, an average human lifespan was not to do any mental math you know just to just to um, say it on impulse and one of my good friends uh, gave me a number in uh, six figures I was pleased to be able to not pleased I was I was able to inform her that um 270,000 weeks is the approximate duration of all human civilization since the ancient Sumerians. So, <laughs> something that's worth, something worth remembering. I'm not going to pretend that I'm even slightly uh, reconciled to uh, any of this, but I have noticed and understood that there is something deeply, deeply liberating about those brief glimpses of the realization that you won't be able to do everything, or even most things, or even many things at all. You can do a very tiny number of things, and this is a whole different topic for a different conversation, but you won't even get to decide what half of those are, or whether they will feel pleasant or comfortable, or whether you'll have success in them or, or, or anything else. But there's something deeply liberating here. You know, you do not have to worry anymore about FOMO, the fear of missing out, when you are living in a situation of uh, GOMO, the guarantee of missing out. Uh, you don't need to... <laughs> uh, you, you don't need to worry about that. And in a way that is, I'm still really struggling to understand myself, there is something that is much more... Um, there's something much more shared and less lonely about this way of thinking also because it becomes much harder to think of other people primarily as obstacles or barriers to uh, the things you uh, thought you were wanting to try to do when you understand that most of that quest that you were on is in some sense uh, a mistake. There's an old British uh, self-help book from years and years ago called Teach Yourself to Live by a grouchy old uh, lawyer called G.E. Ducan. Um, it's kind of a brilliant read. He's so annoyed about most things in life. He's constantly moaning about how the government's 
tax policies are bleeding him dry. He's not, he doesn't appear necessarily to be enjoying his life all that much, but there's something in his, there's something in his, um, in his attitude that I really like. His whole stance on self-help is, as I've been discussing, about accepting your limits instead of trying to uh, outreach them all the time. And he writes this, quote, is this depressing? Not a bit of it. No more depressing than a cold shower bath is depressing. In a while, it's exhilarating. You know where you are. You're no longer befogged and bewildered by a false and misleading illusion about your life, like most people. I wonder if maybe I'm so drawn to this because, um, you know, I'm British too, and moreover from a part of Britain in the north where you really do have to learn to find pleasure in uh, a walk on a windy hillside or, or camaraderie in, a, in a, uh, a barbecue in the drizzling rain. Many of my childhood memories of my father running back in from the garden with the, with the hot dogs on the, under an umbrella uh, where they've been cooking outside so we can eat them in the, in the dry. Continuing this metaphor then about cold showers and, and rain, maybe the quest to master one's time is like hoping for several weeks of consecutive sunshine on the beach at Scarborough, which is a really nice thought, but if you know Scarborough, you also know that it is never going to happen. Whereas acknowledging our limits is maybe like an exhilarating stroll with friends along that same beach in the freezing rain. For one thing, you're really present when you're doing it. And although it's not blissful in any conventional sense, it's certainly, uh, I would say, bracing. So yeah, that's all I have to say really. Thank you for listening, appreciate your time, thank you. Thank you. I'll try and answer questions. I'm going to use this one. Oh, no. Lino? Okay. We have time for a few questions. Anyone want to uh, look up from their phone momentarily to see, to press Mr. Berkman? How would you gauge the receptivity of this message of futility and effort? Um, to any contact you have with large corporations who preach a different gospel, in my experience? It's an interesting question. I, you know, I wonder why I don't get paid enormous amounts of money to speak to huge <laughs> companies very much. I think maybe it's to do with... Uh, with uh, the suggestion that, that, that effort is not, um, that, 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 yes, that endless effort is not necessarily the right measure of, of meaning. I think there is a point to be made here, which I would want to make in that context, if I ever do get those invitations, that this is not, um, that a, a, although, an, although a fixation with efficiency will cause you to live entirely for the bottom line in a way that is not very fulfilling, it's also like really bad for the bottom line. Um, and uh, one of the people I interviewed uh, in the 
course of the uh, piece that David mentioned before, was a, was a business consultant who, who makes, uh, called Tom DeMarco, who makes a really excellent set of arguments that if you render an organization incredibly efficient, so that everyone is putting in maximum effort all the time and nobody is, has any pockets of, of time, then the, there's a direct trade-off with um, uh, uh, versatility and um, the ability to change course on a, on, a, on a dime when needed or to respond to, to changing events. Because uh, if you have like an office administrator who, for whom, uh, you know, 70% of their time is used and the other 30% they're just checking Facebook and you think well Got to make that more efficient got to take this person and, and split their time so that 50% of it is being used by one Executive and 50% by another That person is then completely jammed in their schedule and can't uh, and, and, and is not available to respond when a crisis uh, occurs he kept referring it to it uh, the analogy of those um those nine square sliding tiles where there's one empty square and you slide them around to get the numbers or the letters in order. If you want to make that puzzle more efficient, you can add a ninth, square, a ninth tile to the, to the puzzle, but you won't be able to do the puzzle anymore. Um, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think I could make the case that, uh, that this is um, not a sensible uh, way of thinking, even, even if your goals are exclusively uh, those of, of the average big corporation. Who else? Yes. This seems like the easiest response to what you just said for most of us is going, all right, what's the eight things I'm going to cut out of my life when I go home? How would you address that as a, uh, as a wrong response to admitting your limits as well? If I take the question, Right, I think that um, like this is an endemic problem I've noticed with writing about this stuff is like everybody and me too wants to know like the, the five steps for implementing it and there's something about it that is fundamentally resistant to the notion of, of, of uh, reduction to those five steps. Um, but then I also feel like if I gave a neat answer tied with a bow to, to the, that question it would be sort of violating the the, the point of it too. I mean, I think that, uh, this is gonna sound really lame, but I do think that um, just uh, understanding that it's a journey without any fixed conclusion is, is the only truly uh, useful thing to say about that. I mean, there are things that one should eliminate from one's life or focus on more than than others, but the idea that any one of those is going to provide the final situation, that you're going to get to the point where you put the car in uh, cruise control and, and no more engagement with the issue is, is needed. Hey, maybe it's possible. I just haven't got there myself. Maybe I'm just trying to um, glorify my own failure. It's entirely possible. Mark. Uh, could you comment on the role of busyness and, for lack of a better expression, Virtue signaling, as in, by being so busy, I'm being more virtuous than you are, and, and that type of thing. Yeah, right. I mean, well, busyness is a boast, right? It's, a, it's you feel bad about being busy, but you're also very happy to tell someone that you're so busy because it because it is uh, uh, some sort of 
demonstration of your, your value and uh, meaning to society. I think just looking at that on a historical, um, in historical perspective exposes something very, very strange. It, not all that many, well, it probably is centuries ago, but it's not, you know, there was a time when clearly the measure of status and success would be that you didn't have to do things. Now we are living in a situation where, the, where, where to have as many, where to have a, a very large amount to do is, is the measure of, of high status. Um, partly it's economic changes that I only somewhat uh, understand that lead to a sort of, um, there's a sort of inequality, right? So that, so, that, so that high status jobs are the ones that involve huge amounts of huge amounts of constant busyness and there's a problem of not enough busyness among uh, people who don't have jobs at all for long periods of time. But uh, it's such a strange turnaround. I mean, that's the, that's the, the thing. The problem with preaching about how um, strange it is is that I constantly keep realizing that I'm 100% or let's say 90% infected with it myself and that to do absolutely nothing is... Um, is really difficult. Um, there was that great study, I think, last year that uh, people left alone in a room with nothing to do except the option of delivering themselves a mild electric shock. Would uh, <laughs> like lots of people went for the, the mild electric shock, especially, especially men, uh, in my recollection of that study. Um, so it's not just that I'm fakely pretending that I think it's good to be busy; it's that I've really internalised the idea that it is. Good to be busy, but yeah, um, then you get this sort of arms race of people uh, trying to insist, insist that they are busier than, than uh, anybody else. Slightly um, directionless answer, but hopefully something. Hey, do you notice any trends in your studies generationally? Because I feel like um, upon graduating college back in 08 and a lot of that, there was a lot of talk of you know, millennials are just, they're going to Google where they sit on beanbags and don't do many things and free lunches and long leisurely hours. But I feel like really there's a lot of busyness and it might be things, oh, we didn't know the rug could be spotless. So now we have to make sure it's spotless. They just mm -hmm. fill it up with other types of things. Have you noticed any trends, general, I can't say that word. You get what I'm saying. So there you go. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I don't know that I've noticed trends more than that, more than that I think I've noticed a like a consistency that gets reported as not being, as you say, like there's a, there's a strong desire on the part of any generation to consider the generation coming up beneath it to not be working hard enough. And that's, that seems to be something that goes back uh, a long time. I feel like a little bit uh, squeezed between millennials and baby boomers. I never, I feel like uh, Generation X needs more respect. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But, but um, somebody I know tweeted the other day, whenever I read an article about, how, um, about millennials versus boomers, I wonder if they realize there's a whole generation in between who hates them both. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't have, I don't have that sentiment. Um, and just one, just one little extra thing that I'm, is, is a thought that's triggered by what you say is those kind of working environments where um, millennials allegedly feel very entitled to ask for... Uh, lovely office environments, or they are, you know, provided with um, laundry services and and uh, full range of meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like you can see how that might seem indulgent, but you can also see 
pretty obviously how it's the complete colonization of life by by work. It's the it's a it's a pretty obvious uh, retention tactic to keep the best people there and to keep them doing it all the time. And I'd be very surprised. I don't have statistics on the top of my head, but I'd be very surprised if the end result of that is not much longer hours in general worked by those um, by those people. Oliver, back in the um, corporate question, you suggested that doing, I think this is what you said, doing more things is not the right measure of a meaningful life. And I wondered if you would just talk for a bit about what the right measure of a meaningful life might be. Oh, goodness. Can I? <laughs> I think, I think, um, I think the next speaker will, uh, will, <laughs> will fully unpack this topic. Um, I think when I, when I try to answer this question, I feel like drawn in either in a direction that feels very banal but true. You know, it is time spent with the, your loved ones. It is time spent in, in meaningful social action. It is time spent in contemplation. And, you know, or it becomes, at the other end of the scale, it's like the meaning is like the undecipherable placeholder word that um, you just you're never going to define and you just have to keep sort of stumbling towards. I think what I will say is that, without sounding too kind of pop Buddhist, hopefully, is that um, whatever it is, it is to be found in more, in, it's to be found in the present and uh, possibly also in deep time or infinity or something, but, but very much here and now. And one thing that I'd only mentioned briefly in this in this talk, but which has been a sort of ubiquitous feature of um, all these kinds of personal efficiency methods, is to perpetually cause you to be living, leaning into the future, to be constantly um, valuing a time uh, ten minutes away or five years away that never actually arrives, um, because then it's then it's now when the when the future arrives, um, instead of the present and really sort of understanding how much one does live mentally in the future is um, that feels like an endless process like I thought I figured it out when I went on a meditation retreat five years ago but you know that was just the very beginning so Again, okay one one yeah. final question for you back here <laughs> uh, do you think that this message of human limits and futility can be offered to people that are uninitiated in that in a way that can steer them around train wrecking their lives or is this a message that can only meet people after life has already kicked the bleep out of them and offer consolation that's really interesting I feel like I want to push back against the futility point but maybe that's I don't know maybe it's maybe that word has different layers but certainly the the limit uh, the, the embrace of limits. I do see that um, in certain kind of disguised ways present now in, in a sort of subsection of the self-help productivity literature about, you know, the importance of making trade-offs so as to um, focus on the things that matter the most. It's a, it's a sort of limited version of it because it still is uh, in the framework of certain kinds of achievement that might ultimately, you might ultimately want to question how, how fulfilling they are, but it's, but a really strong pushback in some parts of the, uh, 
world of kind of life hacking and time advice against um, trying to fit everything in. So I take that as a sign that maybe this is something that can, can, can reach more people. I wonder if there's an age thing. I wonder if it is something, yeah, I want, as you suggest, maybe you need at least a few accumulation of, of years to get to the point of seeing that certain things don't work before you, um, before you figure out what, what does. Um, hey, I'm trying to write a book about some of this at the moment, so we'll, I'll be able to tell, because no one will buy it if, uh, if, it, uh, if there isn't uh, some, some reach to the, to the idea. So. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.